Again, Exodus 1, 15 through 22. Let's go ahead and stand as we read. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. You may be seated. And children uh, may be dismissed. Thank you, Aaron. For those of you that have been joining with us reading through the Old, Old Testament and the New Testament, we're finishing up in Leviticus and, and finishing up in Matthew. And it's been an interesting combination of the two um, Old, Old and New Testaments for me. Reading through Leviticus, it's sacrifices and ceremony and blood and um, kind of a rehearsal of some of the sins of man as we go through it. Then as you read that, you turn over to Matthew, and there we are getting into the end of Matthew, and Christ is going to the cross. It's not the picture of the lamb. It is the picture of the lambs in the Old Testament now becoming reality as we read in the New Testament. Those pictures of the Old Testament that we've been looking at uh, all come to fruition in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who dies for the sin of the world. It's, just, it's a wonderful and awesome combination in the reading. If you have gotten behind, I was talking to somebody yesterday, and they said, well, I'm so far behind, I just don't think I can catch up. I would just suggest pick up where we are now and keep on reading uh, with us. And uh, we try to coordinate some of the sermons <clears throat> with some of the scripture that's being read or was read. In my case, I can't get out of the book of Exodus. I can't seem to get out past some of these uh, things that are here. Um, as we got into the book of Exodus and getting the children of Israel out of Egypt, 
we had stories of rescue and stories of delivery and story of freedom. We have Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. We have plagues. We have miracles. We have the Red Sea. We have journey, the promised land, journey in the promised land. And uh, sometimes we do not look in between the lines and to some of the lines very carefully. And in this case, with me, it was uh, an interest. I thought, well, how about the women of the Exodus? And so uh, I entitled the sermon this morning, The Women of the Exodus. In your bulletin, there's a picture um, that in the artwork. And I, I don't, you might look at it. I don't think those are the people that were there. Um, a picture of our gals going through a food line. And um, very apropos for this morning. We want to concentrate on uh, thinking about <clears throat> some of the women of the Exodus. We're going to talk about uh, five, five of them that are listed individually, and then two groups that I want to bring your attention. So if you add that up, that's five and two is seven. So that's a seven-point sermon. Three-point sermons usually go for 45 minutes. So uh, here we go. Right at the beginning uh, there that Aaron just read, it's, it's a beautiful story and uh, <laughs> brings our attention to two women, Shifra and Pua. Shifra, the name means beauty or brightness, and Pua, Pua is splendid or light. So beauty and light because I can't pronounce these old names very well. That's what I'll call them, beauty and light. And they truly are beauty and light in this story. There are two women that have been placed right in the conflict between good and evil, between God and Satan. Um, Satan's plan to kill babies has long been a, play, a ploy of his. He knows from the account of the garden that it would be the seed of the woman that will eventually crush his head. We see it here in Egypt, and we see it in Israel shortly after the birth of Jesus, killing of the babies, trying to stop the Son of God. These women, it's a, it's a very interesting situation. We can't tell by reading... Uh, so much of Exodus and so much of what is being written about these events is a broad um, scope of it. So you can't really tell of the timeline that's going on here. But it, as we look at it this morning, you would think that he come, Pharaoh comes to these two women and he says, uh, you, you have to not let the male baby survive. But I don't know when this took place because this must have taken place quite some time before the Exodus. Because he says um, later on in what, in what Aaron read, it says, Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Then the Pharaoh commanded his people, saying, Every son is born, you are to cast into the Nile. It didn't work, the plan didn't work. And what happened is, is Israel just kept growing with vigor and, and, and the population. So 
well, I, don't, I don't know whether these two midwives are midwives that have other midwives under them or how long before the exodus took place. But God thinks it's so important, uh, these two gals' um, ministry, is that he puts their name in Scripture and he lists them for us. And it's interesting to note that the king of Egypt's name's not there. You just call him a king. In fact, I've been reading, trying to gather a little information from the past <clears throat> on Egypt's history, and there's a couple possibilities of who these kings might be, but they're, they're still not sure. But I just thought as I was reading this, how interesting that God would put these two ladies' names in there. One means beauty, one means light, and God puts their names down so we can celebrate what they did. Now, what did they do? Well, first of all, they disobeyed the authority. They disobeyed the king at their own peril. That must have been something. First they went out and disobeyed, and then they got called in, in front of him. And then they had a rather uh, flimsy excuse. They couldn't get to the Egyptian women in time. They keep having babies, and they're vigorous people. But why did they not obey? What's the scripture say that the, the reason for not obeying the king? Well, it tells us there that they feared God. So there's a lesson in that for us, isn't there? They feared God more than man. And so we have two women in, back in ancient times, in the time of Egypt, who feared the Lord God more than they did the Pharaoh, the greatest power that they knew, humanly speaking. But they feared God. So that's what moved them to obedience. So what happened to them? Well, it said God protected them. And God established households. Look at verse 21, Exodus 1, 21. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. So <clears throat> whatever timetable this was back before the Exodus, there was time for them to disobey, come back to the Pharaoh, um, probably go back to work, but doing the same thing. But then God established homes for them. So they were probably single gals at the time, and that was their service to the nation, being midwives. Disobeyed Pharaoh, God protected them, and then God blessed them with their own families. Um, beauty and light, what a testimony. I'm thinking about that as they had their own families and established a household, their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren. That was my mom. That was my, my mama. That was my great-grandma. She stood against the Pharaoh and wouldn't kill the babies. 
Wow. Satan has been judged at the cross. He's defeated, he's done, but he's still around waiting for his <clears throat> sentence and he's still active and he's still at work and he's still killing babies. Keeps right on doing it. But there's godly women then and now who are still speaking out and still standing up for the unborn, the neglected, the abused. And I, just, I saw those two ladies and they put their life on the line because they feared God and not Pharaoh. And how many folks today, really, there are a lot of gals today that put their reputation on the line. Maybe it's in the workplace, maybe it's business, maybe wherever it is, saying, no, 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 we don't kill babies. Life comes from God and that's wrong and we'll speak out against it and we'll have some action against it. What an opportunity today to stand for righteousness and testify to God's love and God's kindness and His goodness. For women who do that, and men as well, our children, our grandchildren, our neighbors, our nation, will have a testimony to the righteousness of God. What an opportunity today. Our nation needs to hear our voice and see our actions. And it pleases me to know that in this church and some of the others around here that there's an active ministry to say, no, no, that's not right. Satan's tactics don't really change all that much, do they? He comes at a people one way, then another, and then another. We can go back through the history and we can look and we can watch and we can see what he does. The next woman, turn to Exodus chapter 2. Those were two gals there. The next one, of course, is the mother of Jesus. I mean the mother of Moses. Starts out the birth of Moses. Now man from the house of Levi, chapter 2, verse 1, went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when we saw that he was beautiful, when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Well, when you're reading through the Bible in a certain amount of time, we just read through these things, don't we? But I think it's a good thing to stop and to think of the heartache and the misery that was going through Egypt in those people's lives at that time. Husband and his wife marrying, trying to raise a family. Even though they were under slavery, they had shelter, they had food. Um, they were going about their business as best as they could. And yet, here comes this edict to kill their sons. And I can just imagine that this gal wasn't the only gal that tried to hide her baby. We just, Weston just walked out a little bit ago with theirs because he's crying. Yeah, 
That's what babies do. This gal was able to keep her child for three months. There must have been some crazy times in that amount of time. You see, when a government gets in control and they have an edict and then there's vigilantes and there's people that want to show the government how good they are and how, how loyal they are to the government, uh, they want to report those people that aren't obeying the law. Yes, they do. And you could just imagine that when, the, when a baby cried in one of those Israelite homes that Mr. Egyptian was right there going to look and see if it was a girl or a boy. And if it's a boy, he's going to yank it from his mother's arms and he's going to take it out and he's going to throw it in the Nile because that's what Pharaoh said. Can you imagine the heartache with that? Husbands and wives, emotions torn. Mothers who've maybe hid that baby for a month or two months and then got caught and way went. Well, we learn over in Exodus chapter 6 that this couple has, they have names. Exodus chapter 6, verse 20. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, uh, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, and we also know Miriam was born to that couple. So they had three kids. I got to think about marrying your aunt, how strange that might seem, but if you were having kids over a long period of time, um, sometimes you're the same age as your aunt, and of course in those days they were able to marry closer relatives. But they had three children, Aaron, Moses, and Miriam. And those three people we're going to, you see them all through the Exodus and all through the journey, right up until the time they're going to cross into the land of Canaan. Interesting enough, none of them get to go into the land of Canaan. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam are all buried on this side of the Jordan. But they see something in this baby, the mother especially, tells us she looked at him and he was so good. And of course, any mother would think the same thing, but Scripture records to us that it was almost a special child. So she has a plan. She keeps him for three months, hidden, best she can. And finally, she just realizes you can't do this any longer. So she comes up with a plan, and as we read through it, it just says she put, made a basket, put him in the reeds, and and the princess finds him. But as I think about that in real time and a real family, how much time did she plan? How much time did she watch that gal come down, the Pharaoh's daughter come down and bathe and figure out what day it was or where exactly in the river? Did she come to the same place every time? Did she come the same day ever, every day? Did she come the same time? What did she do? There was a lot of study, I'm sure, that went into this. She's trying to keep her baby alive, even though it's going to be raised in Pharaoh's house. She wants to keep him alive. Of course, she's a mother. Of course she does. God built that into you gals. So they plan. 
They come up with a plan, they build a basket, they figure out the right time, the right place, and they place the baby there. She didn't just bake a basket and throw it in the Nile and say, I hope he floats somewhere and it's safe. No more than when David put the rocks in his sling and said, I hope, I hope, I hope it hits him. No, there was a plan. And so what happens with that plan? Well, we know that the may they see him, they hear him crying, and uh, he's rescued. And then the daughter is there, Miriam, the little sister of Moses. She tells the princess that, would you like me to go get a mother, or a, a nurse, she says, not a mother, a nurse. And she goes and gets the mother, and the mother comes back to Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter says, would you take this baby and nurse him, actually raise him for me? And on top of that, I will give you your wages. <clears throat> God's hand is so in this, it's so special. But the real testimony of this woman is in Hebrews chapter 11. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 in the faith chapter, we read something very interesting about Moses and therefore something very interesting about his mother. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen." By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that, when, so, that, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted, were drowned. What did she do in that amount of time that she had? That child is going to be raised in the halls of Pharaoh later on. We don't know how much time she had. Some think she might have even had up to teenage years, early teens. We don't know. But however long she had, she instilled in that young man Moses the love of one Jehovah God. It was so deep and so strong that he was going to go on later and be schooled 
in the schools of Egypt. He was, by some accounts, um, not biblical accounts, but by some accounts, leads a, a, an Egyptian army, um, in, I believe, in the, in the south of Egypt, if I remember reading it correctly. So he very possibly was going to be an heir to the throne. Schooled in all the ways of Egypt. But never, ever forgetting one Jehovah God. And that Jehovah God had promised those people that, they would bring that he would bring them out of Egypt to the land of Canaan. And that was so ingrained in that young man that even though he was lived the life of a king's son, he never forgot his God. Wow. What a testimony to that mother. What a testimony to that mother. As I begin to think about that, I, I also thought, how could you raise a child like that in such a way that he, he would not be embittered against the Egyptians? Be angry. Know the fact that he was rescued, but many other sons were killed. Know the fact that his family was suffering under slavery, and yet he was being raised over in Pharaoh's house. How did she, how did she instill into him? What did she instill in him? That a man could grow up like that. Well, I, I don't know, but I can, I can guess at some things. I can guess that she didn't <clears throat> labor on the negative. She didn't emphasize the fact that the reality was that the Egyptians were cruel to their people. They were godless or polytheistic. What she must have taught him was there is one God he is worthy to be trusted. He's worthy to be praised. He's worthy to follow. And no matter what happens to you in your life, God is with you. It's much like Joseph being down <clears throat> when, when he first came into Egypt. Joseph kept in mind his one true God, even though he was a ruler in Egypt. Now God has got a man, Moses. He's doing the same thing with him. There's something about focusing on our relationship with God and that God is in control. He loves us, but he is a sovereign God and he can work <clears throat> things out for us in our lives even though we might live in a pagan world. Wow. Wow. She did it right. She did it right. She trained him without instilling in him a hatred and a bitterness toward the Egyptians. He needed to grow up and to bring honor to his Egyptian mother. She must have taught him that. You're going to be going to this home. You're going to bring honor to her. Wow. 
There's some lessons we could really take to heart and raise our own children. He needed to grow up to bring honor to his Egyptian mother, to be a part of the royal family, to live and navigate in a pagan culture, but all the while loving the one true God. What a lesson for us today, just how important it is in early training, the positive attitude, instill love for God, a trust in God, and a willingness to take that faith into a pagan culture. She's something else. She, she, should have a, she should have a place maybe in our homes on the wall or something. Pretty special. Then there's the other gal, the sister. We read about her, Miriam. What did she do in this story? Well, she was obedient to her parents, first of all. Mom and dad have a plan. The plan is to put this baby in this thing. She was probably the one that did a lot of the scouting for them. She probably went out and looked and said, well, now you can get out. They don't pay much attention to little, little girls running around here. So why don't you get out and see where that princess, the Pharaoh's daughter, bays? Why don't you see uh, what day it is? Why don't you see how many maids come with her? Why don't you listen to see wh what do you think about them? Yeah, she was out there. And so when the baby is placed out there, She's watching. She's right there. Hmm. And then she does something that we just read over like it's nothing. And I can't hardly imagine what this would have been like for a young girl to approach Pharaoh's daughter, a young slave girl to approach Pharaoh's daughter, to even walk into the company. It must have been terrifying. But she's there and she delivers the message. Would you like me to get a nurse for this little baby? Goes and gets her mother. Well, she turns out to be quite a gal. Brave, courageous, and God uses her literally to save her brother's life. Through the years, she's is a constant companion of her two brothers, Aaron and Moses. And she's the one that leads the singing as they as the women respond to the men singing as they cross the Red Sea. She leads them. She's got to be quite old by then. And then, even getting older, right before they go into the land of Canaan, she makes a bad mistake. She makes a bad decision around jealousy. Which tells us that, yeah, we're all human. But if we start the fight, if we start the path, if we start the fight, we need to finish it. Finish well. That's kind of a story of her life. But as I look at her life and I think of the kids I've known from camp and, and Sunday school and, and from church, young people, young people that trusted Christ as their Savior and God got a hold of their lives. Some of you even here. What a testimony 
God can use us. God can use the young people um, to change lives. Never underestimate the power of a young person's testimony. Many a parent has been led to the love of Christ because of a faithful son or daughter. Absolutely. Young people have a ministry right now, right where we are, right where you are. Don't say someday I have a ministry. It's right now. This girl had a ministry right then. Sometimes it's done in the little things of obedience to parents, and sometimes it's done in stepping out in courage. Stepping out into unknown territory, stepping out into a schoolyard or, or someplace with, where things aren't quite as friendly as they are at home, but standing true to Jesus Christ. Yeah, young people have a testimony. Miriam, as a young person, was used by God in a very special way. Even though later on, she, like all the rest of us, are subject to sinning. Then I thought as I looked through the gals and names, I, I thought, you know, we shouldn't forget the Pharaoh's daughter. How important was she to the Exodus? How in the world, why in the world would the king, the Pharaoh, let his daughter raise a Hebrew child? <laughs> Pondered that a little bit. And then I thought about things that my own daughters asked me. Sure, honey. Sure, honey. Sure, honey. Yeah, whatever you want, honey. Their daughters have their way with dads. And in this case, way back there in Egypt, the daughter of the Pharaoh who was killing babies adopted a Hebrew child. You see, we have a, quite a picture here with our ladies. We have ladies that are protecting children when they're born and making sure they're born and healthy. We have a picture of lady having a child. We have a picture of a sister protecting a child. And now we have a picture of a lady adopting a child. All in the very first pages of the Exodus. She had compassion. She heard that baby crying. I don't care who her dad was and how many babies he was killing. When she heard that baby cry, her heart was moved with compassion. You know, sometimes from the strangest places, the strangest families, and the strangest situations, God moves a heart. And no matter what the background, no matter what the history, no matter what the circumstances, that person makes right choices toward God. Now, we don't know what happened to this Pharaoh's daughter. We don't know if she was still alive at the time of Exodus. We, 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 just, we just don't know. But she raised a son that was a good Egyptian. And the mother had instilled in that son the biological mother, a son that was a follower of God. And those two ladies, you get a Moses. You get a Moses. So it really doesn't matter too much how the baby gets in the world, does it? 
whether he's born biologically or he's born, born, adopted into the family. Really, that's not the point. The point is, how is he trained? How is he trained? What's instilled in those young, formative years? Is there a love for God? Is there a trust for God instilled in that child? Scriptures tell us that if he is trained that way, he will not depart from it later on. Pharaoh's daughter. Interesting. I wish there was some way that I could go back into history and catch up with what some of her thoughts were. Moses and and how proud she was of him maybe as he led an army, but then how heartbroken she was when he left Egypt. And then if she was still alive and he came back, what did she think? It's probably another pharaoh by then. I don't know. But what did she think? I don't know. But God used her regardless. So those are uh, five women. I want to talk a little bit about two groups of women of the Exodus. Turn to Exodus chapter 35 with me. Exodus chapter 35. Sometimes people are singled out by names and their position in life. Sometimes um, they're more in groups. But if you look at Exodus 35, you see we pick it up at a time when, in verse 20, then all the congregation of the sons of Israel departed from Moses' presence, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought their Lord's contributions for the work of the tent meeting and for all the service and for the holy garments. Then all whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets and their articles of gold. <clears throat> both men and women were moved to come and complete the service of the tabernacle, to build it, complete it. Then if we go on down to uh, verse 25. All the skilled women spun with their hands and brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet material and in fine linen. All the women whose heart stirred with a skill spun the goat's hair. The rulers brought the, only, the, rulers brought the onk stones and the stones and this goes on and on. Women's hearts were stirred and they used their talents and their abilities to put together the tabernacle, the place of worship. I wrote next to that, wise, willing workers. Wise, willing workers. Isn't that the way the New Testament church operates today? Wise, willing women workers. Thank you, gals. Thank you, gals. Here we see them in the privacy of their own home, spinning and using their talents and then bringing it to the assembly, to the congregation. That happened in the Exodus. I can't but ponder what life would have been like um, <clears throat> It looks like in the 40 years they were in the wilderness that there was at a minimum of 40 camps 
which would be one a year. But it looks like there's closer to 50. So it kind of putting that together, it sounds like it would average somewhere between eight to 12 months camped in one area. And then picking up, moving all these things and going again. And this is how they lived for 40 years. These were women who actually had dwelling places in Egypt. <laughs> Even though they were under slavery, we know they had dwelling places because that's where they, they put the blood on the doorpost of their homes. Now they're out in Egypt, living in tents, moving, moving. A few months here, then move again. Wise, willing workers. I want to take you to Numbers chapter 25 and list one more group of women that I call women of the Exodus. These are a little different. If you turn with me to Numbers 25. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of the Moab. Now there you have some women of the Exodus. What has happened here is the 40 years are just about up and the people are camped on the other side of the Jordan from Jericho. And not far from them is the Moabite nation worshiping all kinds of idols, and it's all engrossed in sexual immorality. Now, after surviving 40 years, after the older generation falling away and a new generation coming up to enter, we have them numbered at about 600,000 men getting ready to go in. And then we have this little blip on the scene. And we learn that 24,000 die because of their involvement with the Moabite women. <laughs> now you might say to yourself, as I said when I first read that, oh my goodness, they've gone all through that and how could a nation be that bad? Well, I ran some numbers, and they're very easy to run. 24,000 of 600,000 is only 4%. They lost 4% of their young fighting men for immorality. I would say that that's probably not too bad of odds, because it tells me that there's 96% that didn't go that way. there is always going to be Moabite women. They come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, in all kinds of religiousness and non-religiousness. There's always going to be Moabite women who are going to want to draw the young men away from God. Yes, there is. But I wonder as I thought about the women of the Exodus and the mothers of the Exodus, 
When they were marching around through the wilderness, now I'm talking about the ones that couldn't go in because they were the older ones and God wasn't going to let them in until the younger generation came on. I'm wondering about those older women. Now they're raising their children. And they're raising their children that are eventually going to go into the promised land, into Canaan. They didn't get to go. They were too fearful. The enemy was too big. The enemy was too tough. They couldn't go in. There was going to be war, and, and when there's war, you lose people. You always do. They did. I am wondering what the attitude of those women were as they raised their children. Hey, we didn't go, get to go in because your dad and I didn't have enough faith. We didn't trust the Lord enough. But now we walked around in the wilderness and we followed him for 40 years. And you know what? He's trustworthy. God is worth trusting. And so when you get your opportunity, I want you to go. When God asks you to go, you need to go. I think that's what happened to the majority. I see 4% who got turned by the sin of this world not to go and not to follow the Lord. But that happens. I, I, I would to God that we could have just 4% loss as we raise our children and in our churches today. I wish we would have that kind of a percentage. It made me think and wonder, working with young people, seeing young people go to camp, go to a special meeting, come home from church and say, you know what? God is tucking on my heart. I want to serve God. I want to be a missionary. I, I, I want to give whatever it is. I want to give my whole life fully to God. What do the women of today say? What does the Christian man of the day say to that child? Does he say, well, it's really dangerous. Uh, it, 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 there, there's, a, there's a lot of things that could happen to you out there. I don't know if you'd want to be a missionary in that area or this area. I, I just don't know. Or do you say, if God's calling you to follow you in whatever way that he wants to lead you, he'll be faithful because he's been faithful to us. We've made some mistakes and we haven't followed the Lord exactly like we should have. But we want you to trust him more than we trusted him. We want you to delight in him more than we delighted in him. We want you to follow him more than we followed him. I believe that's what the women of the Exodus were telling their sons and daughters. We missed our chance. But we've learned from our mistakes. And we've seen the 
sovereignty of God and we've seen in the love and the mercy of God and we've seen the presence of God, we want you to experience that in your life. I trust that that's our attitudes. I trust that that'll be my attitude when a granddaughter or a grandson uh, might come to us and say, you know, this is where I think God wants me. And you say, wow. If that's where God wants you, that's where you better be. Because that's the safest place in the world is to be in the will of God. Our Father and our God, I thank you for the women of the Exodus. Boy, these two gals that risked their lives because they knew it was wrong to kill babies. This mother that planned and taught and nurtured and instructed this young man so that he could grow up not only with the love of God, but not a bitterness toward his pagan culture. And Lord, for a little sister who took a chance with her courage, assures the safety of her little brother. Lord, we thank you for sisters like that. Lord, for Pharaoh's daughter, there may be some that have come from some really pagan backgrounds, but God has moved their hearts and said, you know, you need to have compassion. I have compassion on you. I, you need to move toward me. You need to be obedient to me, no matter what your background. Pharaoh's daughter had compassion on Moses and raised a young man that was an honor to his country. Lord, for hardworking, willing women, thank you, Lord, for our gals. Thank you for the heritage that we have from godly grandmothers, godly mothers, and now for the ones here today that are doing their best to bring their children up in the nurture and admission of the Lord. And Lord, we pray for our young men and others that are tempted by the, this world, the Sodomites and the Edomites of this world, would draw our kids away. Lord, we pray that we might even have such a good percentage of young faithful people that follow you. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.